when people do, you know, weight vest, seated jump onto a 50 inch box or whatever. I held this med ball and I jumped onto a 40 inch box or whatever. You see these things that are explosive, but actually still pretty slow, still improve. And, and then it's like, oh, see, look, lifting helps us with explosive things. Like, yeah, okay, but that's not the explosive thing we're after. You know, I mean, depending on the athlete. Look, if you're, if you're a shot putter, if you get your standing vert up, that's probably about all you need, right? But yeah, if we're, if we're a sprinter or if we're a high jumper or yeah, somebody in a speed sport, you know, speed is the thing we're after. And, and the, the broad jump, while it may be a good sign of the future, is not success, right? Like getting a big broad jump is a long ways away from, from sprint performance. That was Dan Bach, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling of training of while well, I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show. I will always enjoy conversations and learning about how to help athletes sprint faster and jump higher. As a track coach and strength coach, these two elements have always been very near and dear to my heart, and they are so often either at or near the top of the list when we're looking at what can a, a sports performance program give or help an athlete with in their own physical pursuits. Our guest today is Dan Bach. Dan is the founder of Jump Science, and he is also a coach at Acceleration Sports Performance in Austin, Texas. Dan has been helping athletes reach higher levels of physical ability for over a decade, and not only that, but Dan has reached an elite level in his own vertical jump and dunking ability. I really enjoy talking to coaches who have that intuitiveness that they have gotten from not only coaching athletes and, and really pouring over the research and different training methods and different training schemes, but who have also been through it themselves and the interplay between that personal intuition and training yourself and then taking that to a group of athletes and going back and forth there. I met Dan uh, for the first time, actually, over a decade ago uh, when I was a master's student at Wisconsin Lacrosse, and Dan was an undergrad. He was actually a subject in my master's thesis research on depth jump variations, and Dan had an elite vertical jump. It was really cool to be able to have someone of his ability in that study. On the show today, Dan is going to be speaking about a range of topics when it comes to sprinting and jumping, including his own plyometric progression and how his view on plyometrics and jump training has changed a little bit in the last 10 years and some things that he emphasizes more so now and some things that he puts less emphasis on. 
He's also going to chat about sprinting and what he's looking for in sprinting, an athlete sprinting in a reactive manner. He's also going to get into that shift of a program when an athlete is strong enough or when those uh, an athlete's explosive strength markers or slow speed strength markers have been improving, but you're not seeing improving those true high speed metrics and what to do and how to maintain what you have and everything goes that goes into that art of optimizing high velocity performance. This was a great chat about high velocity training. There are so many nuggets in here and things that I think are directly and practically applicable, applicable to your own training programs. And it was definitely a lot of fun. Let's get on to episode 263 with coach Dan Bach. Dan, it's awesome to have you on the show, man. Could you start off by sharing a little bit about obviously your, your coaching background, but even more than that, actually, I'm interested in how you got interested in sports performance as an athlete. Tell me a little bit about your journey with that. Yeah. So growing up as a kid, you know, I kind of sampled a lot of sports, mostly not organized, but like, you know, neighborhood sports. But by the time I was about 12, I was pretty obsessed with basketball. And uh, when I was 13, I started lifting some weights. Um, I knew a couple exercises that my older brother had done. He had like a weight set in his room in the basement. And uh, I knew a couple exercises. So I started doing those. And then I had an adjustable hoop in the driveway that I would, uh, you know, lower down to like eight feet or whatever it was and start dunking on. And uh, between those two things, I started seeing my vertical increase. And once I, once I saw a little bit, I kind of got hooked and obsessed with it and went on this kind of obsessive journey as a seventh grader into eighth grade of, you know, dunking in the driveway, you know, most days of the week and then doing squats and calf raises uh, down in my basement bedroom five days a week and had this dramatic increase in vertical. You know, I gained probably about a foot of vertical over the course of, you know, maybe eight months or something. And I ended up dunking in eighth grade. And so throughout that process, I just kind of got, got hooked on training and developing the body. Then, you know, my basketball, basketball career, continued, uh, you know, like started playing in high school and I kept trying to develop my vertical in the off season. And, uh, by the time I was 15, I, one, I, w- I became a very good jumper. I mean, I was touching the top of the box on the backboard as a sophomore, but I also, yeah, I was just hooked on training. And at that point, you know, I had used the internet a little bit and found, found out about plyometrics and I was like jumping up my stairs at home and then like sprinting down and jumping back up again. And I was, jumping up and hitting the rim 20 times in a row doing, yeah, you know, a variety of plot metrics that I discovered or whatever on the internet. And, uh, and yeah, when I was 15, I was like, I want to train people for a career. That would be great. You know? So yeah, I was very young age that I was already into training and already kind of experimenting with different, different approaches and, you know, learning about like training hard and then resting and stuff like that. Like I remember there was a time where I would, I had a, a typical weekly workload and then, but if I had a vacation coming up, then I would just double it the week before so that I could rest that <laughs> week, you know? And so I was already doing that type of thing at 14, 15 years old. So yeah, just got, got obsessed with that process and, and learning more and trying to understand more at an early age. In college, I played one year D3 ball at lacrosse, our alma, alma mater. And uh, then the following year, ended up deciding not to play and just got back into jump training and had some more success at that time and got, you know, like up over 40 inches and then started training a couple friends of mine 
turned into a little like jump training squad on campus and then just grew from there into the YouTube videos and a blog and, and, you know, starting to like, people were starting to ask me questions online. I was, you know, giving them feedback or writing a little workout form or whatever. And so that kind of snowballed into this jump science website that now exists. And then uh, at the same time I was getting my exercise science degree. Uh, so, uh, you know, I got that from lacrosse and then by the time I finished school, I had been training people for probably four years already at that point and had some success, um, and learned some things. And so then, uh, was able to, uh, eventually get this job down in Texas and have been, yeah, kind of rolling with it ever since, you know, so definitely like the jump training background, but then by the end of college, I had worked with a couple track and field athletes and become a big fan of training for that sport just because it is dedicated to athletic development as opposed to, you know, the sport plus a little bit of athletic development on the side. So I came down here to Texas and kind of became like the jump training slash track guy at uh, Acceleration where I work now. And uh, it's been seven years here now and uh, I'm loving it. So yeah, it's my background. I ask a lot of coaches, like just primarily, what's your coaching background? I, I wanted to ask you more about your athletic background, just because I think that there's really something unique about people who like started that journey young before they had any formal education, right? Before they got the exercise science degree. And I think yeah. a lot of coaches out there did, but that, like you said, you were, you were obsessive about it. Like you wanted to learn everything you could. And I, I feel like I was very similar. I was doing wall sits to jump higher when I was like 11. <laughs> and I wish actually I, you were saying, I didn't know this about you, but that you had like a low rim, you were starting on a low rim with the dunking and things like that. And I, I think I didn't have really access to a low rim. I always just tried to dunk like tennis balls or like my shirt. Sure. But I couldn't even jump high enough to do that until I was in about eighth grade. And until then, it was just like, how high can you get on the net? I, I think mm-hmm. there's just something about a low rim. Like I know there's other dunkers like Jordan Kilgano starting with the low rim and just obsessively going through that. And so do you feel like, I mean, for young athletes who are wanting to jump higher, I mean, I guess you have sports like volleyball, right? That's jump base, but... What do you think about, maybe this is off the rails a little bit about the plan questions, but something like that yeah. for young athletes, like there's obviously the training, right? But like something like low rim dunks or a sport, the way you make it a sport, what are your thoughts on that? I love it. And I do think there is a, a superiority there compared to, yeah, just trying to touch the rim or touch the backboard. One, just because it's more fun mm-hmm. to to have success <laughs> in the training, right? But then also there's just this component of it's not like a workout, right? Where it's, I, I've, I've had this where I'm training athletes and I, I, mean, I kind of look at, you know, everything they're doing and I think they should get some jump reps in and going up and hitting the vertex is just not as fun as dunking, <laughs> you know, it's just not. And I think just, yeah, having that fun and even that kind of creative, uh, like ideas based, like, oh, I'm going to try this dunk or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to, dunk off one leg or, or whatever, like having that kind of fun, creative environment definitely makes a difference for, yeah, just the motor learning side of things and the motivation side of things. Like, yeah, definitely like in the one-on-one training context, like I do, just telling someone to go hit the vertex, you know, let's like, let's hit 10 foot four, 10 times, you know, just not, mm-hmm. it's just not as good. So yeah, I definitely love the low rim dunking approach. Yeah. That- and even for people who are not basketball players. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I was watching my um 
some neighbor kids in the backyard, they have an adjustable hoop and they put it down to like, you know, these kids are like 10 and 11 and they put it down to like, I don't know, five, six feet and they were trying to dunk yeah. it. I was just thinking to myself, like, this is where it all starts. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's non-judgment. It's, and I think about the non-judgmental aspect too. I mean, I, I beat myself up training for years in the sense like, all I had was the rim. It's like, am I getting higher on the rim? Am I not? Was this a good day? Was this a bad day? Even back when I was 16 or 17 and able to start dunking and things, it would be like, you know, you walk in the gym and you're not feeling, it's kind of like, oh man, but if you can have a rim and it's eight feet and you can just try to do something new or something, then it's fun again. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it's, yeah, for developmental, it just makes so much sense. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Even, uh, even like the mini hoop in my bedroom or my basement, you know, like uh, maybe not jumping as high as I could at that time at, you know, in that context, but like I'm putting the ball, I'm putting this little Nerf ball behind my back and stuff yeah. like, you know, like, like that, even I would say there's some value there. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. No matter what it's fun. And I, maybe we could talk about this. We get into some plyometrics and, and I wanted to ask you some plyometric questions, but I've, I thought about this too, or maybe we could just start here. But like, I, I think about like the line between, I was someone who took plyometrics probably too far. And the fact that I remember even doing like, like sets of hurdle hops when I was at my best. I mean, I, I could jump over 50, 52 inch hurdles. So four, two, four, four repeatedly. But I would, if I was done with that and just walk down to the basketball court, I actually wasn't jumping very high relative sure. to my max. And it's almost cause like the paradigm is just different. It's just like this you're not yielding, you're not using one leg in the other the same way, the rhythm's a little different. And so I've, I at least can say, I still do that stuff or, or implement that stuff, no doubt. But yeah. it's just, I think about it a little bit differently compared to, like you said, like if you have like a low rim in the facility or you find a way or just, I'm, I'm more inclined to just put a hurdle out and say jump over it than I am. Yeah. That That's a much higher proportion of my work now than I think uh, for myself or my athletes. So maybe I'll skip the plyometric talk to the first question because I think it's uh, we're on that train. But like, how have your views on plyometrics evolved over time? Or what do you think about that in context of like a sport jump versus extra type of work? Yeah, so I would say kind of to what you were saying about the hurdle hops, it's like, okay, the hurdle hops are, are good. But, you know, this is like a, a complementary force development exercise. We want to have the base be not plyometrics but the base be fun jumping and, and and hopefully even like diverse fun jumping right so i have volleyball players who jump a ton but they don't jump off one leg they don't you know take a lot of approach speed into their jumps and so one of the things i like to do with them and you know depending on their workload at the time is okay yeah let's get out of hurdle or i usually use a i'll use like a just a jump rope that I kind of hold out in front of them just so that they can't, if they, if they fail, there's like no chance of, of anything going wrong. And it's like, okay, let's, let's run and jump off your left foot and clear this. Let's r- run and jump off your right foot and clear this. So it's, it's diverse. It's hopefully fun because it is like achievement based, but, but we're also not measuring their vertical. So they don't have to deal with, oh man, it was not my best jumping day. It's just like, oh, I'm just trying to jump over this rope, you know? Yeah. I do wish we had an adjustable rim in the facility. <laughs> that would be actually really helpful. Yeah. So I, I like to have that base of the fun jumping. And then you, you complement that with some plyometrics. But yeah, you don't want to let plyometrics be the main thing. Yeah, that's where I've noticed, uh, especially with like online client programming, 
in the last year or two, I've really gotten into, and Iman Flanagan had said this on the show when he talked a lot about just jump and plyometric implementation and force plates and stuff, but like the idea that so many coaches just program plyos for quality. It's it's all numbers. It's how far did you go? What was your RSI? And it's not, we don't actually say, well, how fluid can you be? Or, Or like you're doing, like how, let's do something fun. What are you not doing? Let's make it fun. Let's and plyometrics that aren't measured, I remember hearing, this was probably 10, just reading like people's track and field training logs. Like I used to do that. Yeah. All the fact, I like when you said too, when it, discovering things on the internet, right? Like before it was yeah. so before Instagram <laughs> and YouTube and you had to like look things up and, and hope you could find something new in the search about training that you hadn't seen before. Because I'm back 15, 20 years ago, there was only so many websites. So it's like trying to right. come up with this. So I remember back, re- I used to read training logs and I remember these track coaches or track athletes, jumpers talking about, oh, it's the fall. So the coach didn't let me measure this jump or, you know, we don't measure these jumps in the fall. And I was thinking at the time, like, why would you not measure? Like you have to measure. And, and but <laughs> when you get obsessive about that, though, you lose that, the fluidity and the relationship with just the ground and the, the body in that way. And mm-hmm. so, I love what you said, like, just like jumping for fun as the base. And, but yeah, like how you're doing it too. Like, obviously, the, these athletes are jumping in their sport and hopefully it's fun to them, but then trying to find ways that can diversify that too outside of just sport right. too. Yeah. And I've just, I've just found that there, there's oftentimes significant gaps in my athletes' like athletic history, especially if they specialize early, right? It's like they have literally done one type of jump in volleyball or, you know, maybe two, you got a block jump and you got an approach jump. They've done basically these two types of jumps exclusively for the past six years. And, you know, getting them even to do a one leg jump, maybe like a mental challenge, you know, they they physically don't know how to like run and jump off one leg. And so it's like, I want to fill in that gap a little bit and yeah, have that, that diversity in the jumps and just develop some more well-rounded coordination rather than just, yeah, we'll just, you know, let's go squat and then hope that it works out, you know, well, because you jump all the time in volleyball. Yeah, I just think there's a lot more you can do there. Yeah, I would agree. I, I've definitely gotten more in the realm of, I mean, a standing vertical is not a running vertical, but even like standing vertical, it's interesting to see athletes who just are missing. They haven't played a jumping sport or something, and they're just missing a key component, like in the arm swing yeah. even, or just being able to yield and get to the bottom or stuff like that. And and it's like those athletes are the ones that I see, at least will, they'll tend to put X, Y, Z on their squat, but it's like they'll get on the mat. They might jump a little higher, but they're still leaking like a massive. And I'm not, I, I believe in jump technique. I don't overdo it. And you know, maybe we can talk about that too. But like, you know, sometimes if they don't have those key skills, it's like you're kind of getting strong and just not realizing any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's a... Uh... <laughs> there's some obvious things missing and it's like, okay, I actually have to coach this, you know, like I don't necessarily want to coach this, but man, if you, if your arm swing isn't synchronized with your leg drive, like (laughs) we got to do something here, but yeah, I definitely don't want to get real like conscious and thoughtful, but uh, yeah, sometimes when it's just, yeah, completely lacking, you have to have to address it somehow. Yeah. Like I like you said, like, I don't want to have to coach this. And I wish, I wish, I feel like that should be the attitude more often, like just giving, give athletes that fun thing to do, give them that obstacle, let them, you know, experience different jumps. And you shouldn't, your first instinct shouldn't be like, you know, like this is supposed to be non-judgmental so that you can experience and have fun and your body put together some more skills. So I like how you said that. Like, I don't want to, especially jumping, like your body, 
uh, Gary Ward, who was just on, he's like, his fifth rule of human movement is the body is hardwired for perfection. Like we, our body wants to figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. So just giving that a chance over time. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the plyometrics, so one of the questions I did have for you was, uh, as you've gone through your, your time as an athlete and a coach, uh, is there any plyometrics? So outside of the jumping for fun, is there anything that yeah. you've trended towards in terms of like, this is like a pretty core staple in my program? things that based off maybe age group or ability you really like to have in and how do you tend to use those as the complement to the more sport specific or fun type jumping? Yeah. So, um, I would say, you know, pretty early on, I, I did have well, early on, I would say like when I first started training people in college, I did have a somewhat diverse selection of plyometrics. I kind of had categories where I have like the higher impact two foot files, like yeah, your hurdle hops, your tuck jumps, um, obviously your depth jumps. And then I had like your sort of strength-based plyos, squat jumps, lunge jumps, rhythmic broad jumps I would put into that category. And then I had like quick contact, which for me, like the, my go-to one way back then was just line hops, you know, back and forth across a line, either side to side or front to back, which was one that I like didn't really have a way to justify intellectually at that time, but I just kind of like had a sense that it was good based on, you know, a feeling I would get from doing them. And then also feelings other, you know, like some of the people I would train would get from doing them. And I would say that quick contact category is the one that I have like expanded the most Mm. and try to use more because yeah, like I still have those other categories But the quick contact, I think what I've learned is that that's the one that really builds elasticity the most is getting the volume of that. So nowadays, really, I would say sprinting is the plyometric that I have, you know, gravitated the most toward trying to make sure that is included in a, in an athlete's overall workload. And I would say that, you know, I learned that lesson from track athletes, basically. Uh, where when I first started to train track athletes or the, like the first cup, like exposure that I had to them, you know, which is like later in college, it was, first of all, these people are way faster than I thought. <laughs> and, and, you know, what is it that they have that I don't, you know, as a, a, somebody with a basketball and a two foot jumping background, what is it that they have that I don't? And then also as I, you know, trained more athletes, you see these, uh, athletes with, a track background who maybe aren't like, you know, super like talented in terms of muscle power, maybe have like an average standing vert or broad jump, but then, you know, you watch them do a skip and it's like, wow, they're really light on their feet or, or, or a bound. Or then obviously, you know, if, if they get up to max velocity, it's like they have something there that a lot of athletes don't have. And yeah, even, uh, even like the cross country level, like the distance level, I worked with a guy, unfortunately, it was only for a short period of time. He was a high school cross-country runner, not even a great one. He was like an average one. But he, you know, you watch him skip, he had this lightness on his feet. And I'm just thinking, I wish I had that, you know, and I've done a lot of jump training in my life. And then, you know, I did an RSI test with him one time, and he had a higher RSI than like most football and basketball players, that I, you know, at least at the high school level. And so I've just kind of learned like, boy, running and, and, you know, faster running in particular and sprinting, this does something to people over time. You know, this develops a quality that, uh, that is very coveted. 
And, and maybe it's partially, you know, genetics too. It's definitely partially genetics too. But yeah, so I would say that sprinting or even just, yeah, faster running, you know, in that like 80 to 90% realm and getting a, a decent volume of that. And then also like expanding the hopping variations a lot, you know, so it's not just the line hops, but it's hopping forward, hopping sideways, hopping, you know, diagonally, hopping for distance, hopping and trying to, you know, get off the ground fast, all these different things. That would be the realm that I've expanded the most, the most and, uh, and probably prioritize actually over, over like depth jumps. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, it's funny how I've I've actually very much gone, and I still have depth jumps in my program, but if you look at my programs now compared to even five years ago, the depth jump type volume is probably half, and there's way more like sub-maximal bounding. And by sub-maximal, it's almost more short contact-oriented, not distance, but like, and yeah. that, that's what I've found. It's like it, bounding for distance and, and bounding for contact are two very different things, or just you can keep taking it out and you have sprinting, you know, like, right. and, and <laughs> The ability, I've, re- I've realized that the ability to bound long, a lot of times it's just people learning to rotate more, like rotate their body, hang on to mm-hmm. that knee drive a little more. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that foot impulse got that much better. Hopefully it did, you know, but like, if anything, I've gotten, and I've just, I've mentioned this, I just love this term so much. It was uh, Josh, Josh Waitzkin in The Art of Learning. He talks about, because he was like an elite chess player and then he got into martial arts and talks about like the feedback loops get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I, I think about in sport, it's, it, he calls it drawing smaller circles. And I feel like the ultimate sure. small circles are that sprint contact that, like you said, the line hop, like those little quick hops where it's like a small movement. And that's where those little fast isos originate. And then we build out from there versus everyone else. It's like not everyone else, but a lot of times you just want to see, you know, how high, how far, how this, how long was your stride length or something and versus... Yeah the idea of, of those, those quicker movements being an origin. Yeah, definitely bounding is one that, you know, bounding can be very different depending on the execution. Right. And yeah, I mean, when you bound for distance, a lot of times it's actually just more ugly, right? It's like getting, spending longer on the ground, being more, it's more of like a slapping type of foot Mm -hmm. contact. It's getting more muscular, it's getting more reachy. And so then, yeah, if you're doing that, it's, yeah, it's more of like a muscle power thing than it is an elasticity thing in, in a lot of cases. So, so yeah, I like to do, okay, well, let's bound, you know, 20 yards and eight bounds, but we don't really need to go farther than that. You know, let's just be smooth and, and quick off the ground doing that versus, uh, you know, let's stretch this out to 25 and just let it get ugly. 
Yeah, I like so the hopping too, like like the little quick hops. I mean, it's probably similar. I think the rudiment hops are they like the damn path or I, I think damn path kind of is credited at least with coming up with that type of, of thing. Is that mm-hmm. like pretty similar? Like just like the little short, like one foot. Are you doing them for speed off the ground or like how are the some of the different ways you'll actually like put those little smaller hops in there? The moving ones, I, I should say. Right. Yeah, definitely just trying to be keep them pretty easy and relaxed. And and then yeah, I don't necessarily say quick off the ground if because I don't not trying to always create yeah. a ton of effort. But then yeah, forwards, backwards, sideways, diagonally forwards. And yeah, basically trying to get people to move with less effort mm. and just be just kind of bounce off the ground. Like I'll, I'll use that term a lot. Like and then I'll, I'll do, you know, some of the ones with like if you do the hop with a tuck where you're pulling your foot up underneath you, that does get to higher effort. But even those. What I'll do is I might say quicker off the ground and I'll say, uh, let's move like one yard per hop. So it's not max distance or, you know, some of the better athletes be like, let's do two yards per hop um, with a tuck. So they're still staying light on their feet and they're not just chasing that distance and getting slappy on the ground and getting all muscular. Um, And that's also being easier on their knees, of course, too, if we're just keeping things a little bit submaximal there. I agree. I, I would say that's definitely what I would prefer as well versus just, I mean, I, I feel like if you're going to be quick, save it for the single leg line hops or something like that or the sure uh, over, you know, but I like how you do that. Di- I haven't really, I hadn't really done the diagonals too much, but I think about that. And I think about like Chong Ji, who was on the show a long time ago, has got like the hyper arch hop. It's like, it has that diagonal yeah. quality because that's the way the foot doesn't load pure linear. The foot loads from, you know, depending on the speed of movement, but generally from outside to inside edge. And and right. so it's like, well, let's, yeah, try to replicate that. And I also think too about one thing I've started doing the last year was the idea where, yeah, doing those easy hops and then throw a tuck jump in every five yards or something like just sure. so it's yeah. easy, like make it easy, make it easy. Okay. Now throw a tuck jump in and then athletes seem to respond well to that. And I, there was a swim coach actually who said the idea of, of swimming with like the idea of, I want you to use as little muscle as possible when you swim. Sure. And to be fluid. So I, I took that into the, the idea of the, the jumps as well. And like, I want you to use, it's like counterintuitive to the industry, right? Like where it's yeah. like the most muscle. It's like, no, I want you to jump and use the least muscle. Like that's the person mm-hmm. who wins. It'd be kind of funny to hook like an EMG up to their calves or their legs and be like, all right, whoever's reading is the lowest here and still makes it to the other side. Right. Then you win. Right. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting if you could put measurement on it. I suspect, though, that like the calf would still be plenty activated. Yeah, yeah. It would be impossible yeah, even to when not. Because you have to have that structure of the foot arches. And that, yeah, you're right. You're right. right. I mean, it would be right. I, you have to figure out some muscle that people compensate with when they're trying too hard. And then you could put it on that one. But yeah, it would probably be more quad, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. I, I think that'd be fair. Whoever's got their EMG equipment out maybe can mess around with that and report back <laughs> to us. So what have you, is there any plyometrics you've kind of gone away from? You know, like I use this a lot when I was kind of starting out and training athletes and I just don't see the importance of it as much over time. You know, not really that come to mind. I would say just that the high intensity two foot stuff is just a smaller piece of the puzzle Mm -hmm. for me now. You know, that would be the one where maybe we are going to test an RSI or... Yeah, maybe we're going to look at maybe just ground contact on a, a depth jump or something. You know, I'll, I'll still use those for like the occasional test. But yeah, it's not like I'm going to, uh, I say, okay, let's do hurdle hops 
every week. Let's do depth jumps every week. And these are going to be a staple. Yeah, those, those are a smaller piece of the puzzle for me now, probably, at, versus like the sprinting, the quick stuff, and then just like the fun jumping. But I, yeah, I wouldn't say I've gone away from them in the sense that I don't think they should be done anymore. But yeah, it's just a smaller piece of the puzzle. Yeah, just less in, in favor of like, it's like every time, the time you don't spend sprint or the time you uh, spend doing those extra hurdle hops is time you could be sprinting. So <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And it's training costs too, right? Yeah, it's stress on the body. Yeah, if yeah. they're already a jumping athlete too, are you just going to keep pounding, right? Like, or even if they're not, right? Because it, it seems like it's a trend that I hear that the top end velocity seems to be the missing bucket for almost everybody, unless you're a yeah. 100 meter or two, you know, track sprinter. So how do you go about utilizing sprinting in the course of it? Like an athlete's weekly or monthly workload, can you give some principles on how you're you're utilizing that? Yeah, so first of all, I would say I want to just get him to a point where I, I like how it looks, you know, where we have decent posture, hopefully re- decent relaxation, which is, you know, subjective, obviously, but, you know, you, you get a sense of, okay, if we have an athlete do a, a 60 meter sprint with 90% effort, we're hoping we can be not gassed after that, right? Like we want this to feel pretty easy, pretty repeatable. Like you could go do it again two minutes later, you know, I look at, I want to have high heel recovery. That's something that, you know, outside of track or outside of, well, even you see it even in a speed sport, like football, sometimes depending on the athlete, um, if you're, you know, not getting your foot up at, at max velocity, that's a, a big problem. And it's, it's going to slow you down and make you more likely to hurt yourself. So I, I need to see that high heel recovery where yeah, you basically have a, you know, a butt kick or. Maybe if we're afraid of backside mechanics, maybe a little <laughs> bit less of a butt kick, but I'm not very afraid yeah. of backside mechanics. So I want to see that high heel recovery. And then I want to look at the foot contact, how they're touching the ground. And I'm hoping to see, a, you know, a little bit of forefoot first, like middle or forefoot. And then obviously like that outside edge, you know, we see touchdown first, we hope. You know, some athletes, again, I'm, we're talking about if I work with a volleyball player with like no sprinting background. And they're maybe a natural heel striker. Yeah, I was about to say heel striker. You said volleyball is like yeah. heel striker. <laughs> then um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not expecting them to touch the ground like Usain Bolt does. But I'm hoping to at least move in that direction of maybe we can get a little bit more like a, just a flat foot contact. Something just so that it, it is a bounce off the track and it's not just, you know, crashing mm-hmm. the heel into the ground. Because then I think, you know, you're losing the elastic stimulus that you want from sprinting if if you're if you're heel striking, or at least you're losing the stimulus on the lower leg. Yeah. So I have those kind of those pieces of the puzzle that I want to see, you know, what does it look like? And I want to get that established. And, and so that's typically, you know, typically going to be done with like warm up stuff, like mixing in with the easy plyometrics. We're doing like, you know, a little bit of sprint, sprint drill type stuff, like stiff leg bounds or like a, you know, pretty common exercise for me like a pretty, pretty common warm-up thing you can work on how you're contacting the ground pretty easily in those um and then just like a high knee butt kick you're pulling the foot up underneath the hip and then oh and i do all this uh, i do warm-ups in uh without shoes on on the turf so it's all it's naturally four foot then and then yeah getting to the point where we can do like a, a 40 or a 60 meter sprint and you know it doesn't have to be all out with some of the athletes but just we can do this without getting super tired. We can do this without getting extremely sore the next day 
where this is just a regular thing that's a you know a, a, something that athletes can do and i just think yeah like athletes should be able to run <laughs> mm-hmm. and then and then i'm hoping to do that at least once a week with an athlete have that stimulus in there um obviously if it's like a speed sport athlete then i'm hoping that they're doing it you know more like three or four times a week but yeah like you know reasonable volume not uh, not generally telling people like hey go sprint 200s at the track or anything like that but just uh yeah let's get let's get this stimulus uh let's get this tool as a regular thing for you and then over time we're hoping it's gonna you know change you athletically a little bit yeah i, I couldn't agree more with you mentioned the that like heel close to the butt action in the run and then the that strike off the foot. I just posted on Instagram as Arian Knighton running nineteen eight or whatever it was, and he's like, I love, I like watching younger sprinters before they've been, you know, really coached up, I guess, quote unquote, or they've gotten yeah. some of the more like strength that might come in their early twenties, the physical strength or being in the weight room a lot. And I don't know, maybe he probably does lift and stuff like that. But you see this very like high. Uh, Darian Barr talks about this all the time. It's like foot high in the back. Like it's coming up high behind the butt mm-hmm. and then it's shooting down in the straight collision to the ground. I mean, his knees weren't like super high when he was running. And it's like how much is going right into the foot and up the elastic chain in that style versus people who, yeah, like you said, like these athletes who are heel striking, like they can run all day. But if they're going to heel strike, they're never really getting to that point where that, that, that high to low action is driving it right into the midfoot or the forefoot. Right. And I know personally for me, I've lost, I mean, I look at my training over time and every time I've been the most athletic, there's been a lot of sprinting or even tempo running in the program. Cause I still would run that way, yeah. even in tempo still, it's still high to low. It's still off the forefoot. So still good, you know? And, mm-hmm. and every time I kind of went or racing people or running fast and every time I just, even that was out, you know, and it just got replaced with extra depth jumps. It never turned out that well. Like it was okay, but it just never was as good. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the the intense plyometrics. It's more that like short term little boosts type of thing. It's maybe like a, a a way of you know maintaining strength at times, or like yeah, you can you know maybe you're replacing squats with like depth jumps at, at times. Yeah, it's more of like that targeted kind of we're getting the short term boost from it rather than like this is the base of what we do. You know, like I've been death jumping all year long. Yeah. 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 What do you, um, how do you implement like the athletes, like let's say seventh through high school or college, like what's your progression? When do you like, okay, now we can start using them. And how do you go through that through a athlete's career time with you? I would say I'm mostly a qualitative approach there. Just like, you know, what is the, what do things look like as far as, yeah, if we're trying to bounce off the ground you know, is this athlete competent? Are they healthy and robust? That's the other thing. Like, you know, if we have a history of knee pain, I'm going to be a lot less likely to implement depth jumps. But yeah, if we're healthy and particularly like stronger quads, then I'm going to feel pretty confident. And I, and I, and I, you know, I'll do that. I'll do a depth jump with a 15 year old girl. If she has the right, the right pieces in place. Yeah. I don't necessarily have like a, like a huge strength, goal that i need everyone to be at or something like i know there's the one and a half or double body weight squat kind of kind of thought and i don't think that's the worst idea honestly to be to to be safe but i'm more interested in if you can hop well on one leg and you can bounce off the ground while on two feet and you have good uh knee structure as far as i can tell then 
that's going to allow me to use that that uh, like intense two foot stimulus, regardless of what your max squat is. Yeah. With um, one more question here with the uh, like the RSI and sprinting is that you had a post I thought was really good. It was talking about or you just had people doing like hops on the jump map, getting their you know four jump or something like that or RSI. I'm not sure what test to use exactly, but the reactive strength. I I should define this too. I <laughs> react for people who are listening who haven't heard RSI. I imagine a lot have, but reactive strength index basically how high can you get up in there? How quickly off the ground? Usually off two legs, but perhaps off one. Will people do it? But you had said like. You want to increase your reactive strength index off two feet and hopping by sprinting more than thinking the other way around is going to fix things. Could you just go into that a little bit? So I would say, yeah, for, for RSI, I'm measuring airtime divided by ground time. And, you know, so that's the, just so we're clear, that's the equation I'm working with. The, the concept is definitely very relevant, right? Because it's your ability to get off the ground fast. Can you produce a lot of force to generate, uh, you know, some level of impulse in a, in a short time? That's very relevant for sprinting. That's kind of what sprinting is about, basically. In fact, I would even say that your sprinting RSI is actually a great indicator of how fast you are. Like your airtime to ground time ratio during sprinting is actually a pretty, pretty clear indicator. Like if you have leg length and that, that's mm-hmm. more or less going to determine how fast you can sprint. And even that has an influence, I think, on some of the mechanical things that people like to look at, like uh, knees together at touchdown at max velocity. You know, people like to look at that. Well, your high-level athletes are spending a little bit longer in the air and then definitely uh, less time on the ground. So, you know, if you have more time in the air between foot contacts, obviously your swing leg is going to recover closer to where your, mm-hmm. your stance leg is by the time it touches down. So that happens naturally yes. as you get more athletic, you know, as your sprinting RSI improves. If you take someone who's like a heavy, heavy on their feet, like they're not going to be able to implement that technique. You know, they might be able to drill it at three meters per second, but they're not going to be able to implement that technique while sprinting max velocity. No. But yeah, so anyway, your typical RSI jump is the bouncing off of two feet and looking at it that way. And again, I think it's it's a good test, but um, I just don't think you should chase that test because there is still a separation between that two foot RSI and max velocity performance or even like. Uh, running single leg jump performance or something mm-hmm. like that. When it comes down to the actual practical sports movement that we're trying to improve, there's still a gap there. And I've, I've seen the RSI, people can fake it to some degree, or they can like manufacture a high RSI on two feet. If they are strong relative to body weight, particularly in, in the quads, like if they're a good squatter, and then they just have like some two foot plows experience and they're familiar with this idea of like, how do I get off the ground faster? They have those, you know, those traits, they can manufacture a, a really good RSI and still be like a sub nine meters per second sprinter. So yeah, I just think that you don't want to chase the RSI by doing two foot plyos and getting your squat up. You, you want to chase speed, you know, sprint a lot. And because of that, you have this lightness on your feet and then you do the RSI test without having to even train it. And now you're just better at it. So yeah, you're, you know, you're improving your RSI because you've been, you know, sprinting a couple thousand meters per week for the past few months, rather than because you test your RSI every week and you got your squat up. Yeah. I think it'd be the same as saying like, 
maybe the idea of just getting your squad up to jump higher versus using power to help boost the squad as well. Like, yeah, it's the, the speed and the power rising all ships. And I, I, I mean, about the time when I was at grad school in lacrosse, probably about the same time we were there together. I, I remember I got my four jump up to like 3.44, which was pretty good. It was, yeah. And I could tell you, I was decent at jumping at that point, but not great. My one leg was probably not as good, but not probably my one leg was, I jumped like six, eight and high jump at a meet, but it wasn't like awesome. I mean, it was my, and, uh, my speed was not good. I remember they had the, the sprint gates up at one practice and I just jumped in and ran a terrible time and it was just not and it's like I could manufacture that good four jump because I was really good at like internally rotating and you know pressurizing my pelvic floor and just doing all the mm-hmm. little things you have to do to be a pogo stick in place but compared to other I mean I wasn't doing that stuff when I like high jump seven feet you know like it wasn't it was more right. just tempo sprinting and being competitive sprinting against people one thing you said too I liked was the idea of that that the knees together and and how that will happen naturally when you're getting that good transition. Like I like the Darian bar says the transition of the class two lever transition of the ball, of the feet quickly. There's that you mentioned not like running in sand, right? The high heel recovery, like that ability to be stiff of the foot, quick, stiff in context as you need yeah. quick. And then it cycles up. And it's just so many coaches will throw out the wickets and being like, look, I got the knee drive to come up. I got the figure four position, but you're totally manufacturing it. Cause you didn't, it's like the athlete got their foot into the position faster and stiffer. And then when they, like you said, when they actually have to go run as fast as they can, they're not going to do that because it doesn't, no. it doesn't fit at all. It was actually, sadly, she's not running in the Olympics, but Shakari Richardson is a good oh, person yeah. who like, yeah, as you said, she, her, she is so fast. I mean, being five foot probably helps too, but like she gets to that ball, the foot so fast, it just throws her leg almost up and then into that position and the other stride. It's really amazing to watch. Yeah. And I, so I saw somebody post about her and, you know, called her like a master technician. And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess. But I I wonder how much she's ever thought about that. You know, doubt, doubt <laughs> I bet much. you it mostly just comes because she's that athletic. You know, I, she's probably done some wicked drills in her life. But, uh, I, you know, I, I doubt that. Yeah, she's thinking about knees together at touchdown <laughs> while sprinting or, or anything of the sort. You know, it just happens naturally because, again, it's. If you're that fast off the ground and you can produce that much airtime and that, you know, the tiny time frame, then that's going to come naturally. That, that timing of things is just going to change as you get more athletic like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I just take it back to the, the making smaller circles. It's the quick little things that are happening around the ground time in the way that versus trying to yeah, force things in the air. It's like as if she's thinking of that, like <laughs> forcing that in the air. I mean, yeah. It, it's, uh, yeah, just thinking of that, that speed first and so okay let's get into a little bit about the the strength and one of the things that you've mentioned i I know a lot is just the alternation of or the i guess you call it the introduction and the elimination and reintroduction of strength versus i think so many times being a strength coach it's like oh it's my job to be a strength coach it's i gotta keep weights in all the time and and, then xyz could you talk a little bit about how you'll introduce and reintroduce uh, uh, strength throughout the year yeah. So I would say, first of all, you know, I'm a huge believer in strength training. I definitely am not against it. I don't think it's, you know, limited in value or, you know, any of these phrases that people like to throw out there. Um, I'm very much for it. I probably believe in it more than actually than a lot of people. And so I, you know, typically I, I expect to use strength training and to improve an athlete's performance. And I actually don't I don't want to have to alternate between strength training and not strength training. It's more of something that just comes out of necessity. 
So, you know, your dream scenario is you just, you know, you sprint, you jump, you throw, you lift, and you just get better at everything. And you don't have to think too much about it. And, and I, I want to see that happen. And I, honestly, I, I do see that happen in some cases. The question is, though, does it happen forever? How long does it last? And yeah, I mean, we've all seen the, the teenage male athlete who starts strength training and just gets better across the board. And it's like, oh, look, we're, you know, we're, <laughs> I'm a genius, <laughs> you know, like conjugate method for life, right? But yeah, it's just that scenario doesn't always last. Or maybe even even maybe there's some progress, but it's not the progress that we are necessarily going for or like the priority that we want. You know, you start to see sort of the separation between strength and speed develop. Um, where one's developing more than the other. Or so maybe you have like strength goes up. Maybe your in-between stuff even goes up. Like your, your standing broad jump, your standing vert, uh, your, what do people do? You know, weight vest, seated jump onto a 50-inch box or whatever. I held this med ball and I jumped onto a 40-inch box or whatever. You see these things that are explosive, but actually still pretty slow, still improve. And, and then it's like, oh, see, look, lifting helps us with explosive things. Like, yeah, okay, but that's not the explosive thing we're after. You know, I mean, depending on the athlete. Look, if you're, if you're a shot putter, if you get your standing vert up, that's probably about all you need, right? But, yeah, if we're, if we're a sprinter or if we're a high jumper or, yeah, somebody in a speed sport, you know, speed is the thing we're after. And, and the, the broad jump, while it may be a good sign of the future, is not success, right? Like getting a big broad jump is a long ways away from, from sprint performance. So when I see that separation start to happen, let's say squat went up 40 pounds, maybe even like clean went up 30 pounds, broad jump went up six inches, vertical went up three inches, top speed is down a little bit. That's where I'm looking to, you know, make this shift in the training to the explosive direction so that we're going to try to maximize how athletic we can be at this given strength level. And that's where that kind of alternating comes in where when I see this need, uh, that's where I want to get, you know, shift away from strength and try to get as yeah explosive and elastic as possible. But yeah, I don't like, I don't want to have to do that. It's just, it's just the, the, the conclusion I arrive at when you track how things are changing over time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I get to what you're saying. And I, and I agree. I, I do think that even in my time as a college strength coach and things like that, you, I mean, ideally you just shift phases a little bit, you know, maybe we just doing a little bit quicker stuff, less volume, you know, maybe drop out deep squats for a while, whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, and so I definitely, it, it is interesting too. I know for me personally, when I was younger, like in high school, every time I stopped lifting at that point, I would get a huge boost in all my stuff. And maybe I was just overtraining back then too. Yeah, that's and, definitely a piece of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would always get a huge boost. I would always feel so much better for about, you know, two, three weeks and then maybe need to lift again. And then as I got into my 20s and maybe part of this was just getting smarter is I didn't notice that I needed to get away from that as much. Like it just never seemed. But I think maybe part of that was just getting smarter, not being stupid with the barbell volumes, probably not back squatting with bad technique like I did in high school that might have been more taxing on my nervous system or function right. or stuff like that so uh when you do start to see that gap though you know those lifts are going up or explosive like like shot putter power is going up but we need a little bit more of that quick twitch i mean will you just is there situations where you will say all right we're just not going to squat for this amount of time like 
What are some of the remedies that you'll utilize once you see there's that gap growing? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I'd say definitely it's an individualized approach. I'll look at, you know, definitely like just look at the strength level. You know, I have like with the female volleyball players right there, a lot of them are going to squat under their body weight or maybe a little bit more than their body weight. I'm not expecting them to take a strength training break, like a significant strength training break ever. When we get into that, like, you know, medium strength or higher, that's where I'm, you know, at least considering the, the strategy. And that's where I'm going to look more at, like, how does their strength relate to their athleticism? So if we have, if we have let's say, like a two and a half times body weight squat, a, like a football player who runs like a 5-5 five, five in the 40-yard dash, that's a situation where, okay, I'm going to be more extreme with the approach where, yeah, like you're probably not going to squat like indefinitely, or at least that's what I would like to do. I don't always get to control those things. But, and so then it would be, yeah, like this long-term, let's get away from maximum strength. And I, I do have, in terms of the specific strategy, I actually do have, you know, some examples of guys that didn't touch a weight for like three months and had great success. One of the first guys I trained was my friend, Chris. He would, you know, train like based on the college semesters. And uh, there was a couple times in the spring where he was lifting hard and then he would go home for the summer and he was just playing basketball um, and, and jumping a little bit. And like a couple months later, you know, removed from strength training, his vertical would shoot up like three, four inches just out of nowhere. And I do think that was, which, you know, I eventually learned was that was more about fatigue mm-hmm. <laughs> than it was about like strength training is like causing him to have bad adaptations. Um, it was just like, I, you know, my approach to strength training was just a little extreme then kind of like you mentioned. And so then I eventually learned to, okay, well, if we adjust to that strength training intensity the, or that strength training demand, we don't have to lift ourselves into a hole and then bounce back two months later, <laughs> you know, we can just make a little bit more steady progress instead. But yeah, so he had that example of not, not touching the weight for months and he would get a good performance boost from that. Another guy trained, he was one of the first track athletes I worked with. He was a four hurdler, but then also spontaneously a heptathlete during indoor season. So he, he strength trained pretty solid from like, you know, July to December, then like little break over Christmas. And then again, like January, February, late indoor season to, to do the heptathlon. He, you know, didn't, tra- didn't strength train for about a month and did great. Um, and then got a little bit more lifting in. He PR'd his first 400 hurdles race, which was great, you know. And so you could be, look, strength training makes you better. Do it all the time. This is good. But following this first race where he PR'd, he didn't touch a weight for seven weeks. He PR'd like four or five more times. Took two and a half seconds more off compared to his first race, and ended up, you know, a nationals qualifier after being like a average or even below average hurdler the previous year. So yeah, you have these examples of not touching a weight at all. And that's kind of more the extreme approach to it. What I lean more toward now is being a little more like, let's be a little more sure of what's going on. So that's where I will use power training or, you know, what people typically call power. So either an Olympic lift variation or like a weighted jump, something like that to to do strength maintenance. I would also put those strength-based plyos in there, like one of the tools in the box there. So, you know, rhythmic broad jumps, lunge jumps, things like that. 
These are explosive training that's not going to wear you out, not going to make you slow, but it will help you maintain your strength and power. And what I'll do is use, you know, like pick one of those power movements and use it as an indicator of what's going on. So that four hurdler, you know, years later he was training and what we would do is just, we were basically going to like max or near max his power clean every week. And as long as it stayed good, then we would not have to like, you know, do more strength training during this period of like trying to maximize his speed. And he could go, he could do, you know, if he had lifted consistently, like strength trained consistently for a few months leading up to it, he could go eight weeks without doing anything strength based and his power clean would stay good. And probably even somewhere in there, he would hit like a new personal best just because he's a little more fresh, a little more explosive than before. So yeah, getting away from strength training, but then not, yeah, using the power training as a way of maintaining strength uh, would kind of be my go-to approach now for, yeah, letting somebody get explosive, get fresh, but not just, not just ignore strength and just leave it up to chance, you know, Mm -hmm. like we don't really know what's happening then. But yeah, if you're, you know, if you're consistently like cleaning or, you know, maybe you measure a jump squat or, you know, whatever it is, some type of power movement, if you're measuring that and it's being maintained, then you really don't need to worry about like strength that's relevant for athleticism disappearing. Yeah, yeah. Did I, that I, answer like, the question? It did. It did. Uh, the, the big thing yeah. I took from it is I, and I would agree, I think most coaches would be in this boat is there's that. And I, one of the, I just, I always think about this is when Jerome Simeon was on the show, who works with Kevin Mayer as his strength coach, and they didn't mm-hmm. touch a heavy weight, I think over 135 for squat or whatever, for like seven months. And then he set the world record. Like that was just sure. blows my mind. You have to have so much intuition and confidence in what you're doing. I and mean, that's like amazing to me. But like you said, it's like, you have to pick that KPI that tells you too that you're not losing what you need. And it's like, well, yeah, what would a squat offer to you from that power perspective, at least is that explosive shot putter strength. And if you're not losing that, then you're probably fine. So yeah, having that metric to know that, yes, this is okay. We're not losing this element of the metric. And I would wonder too, if you're not losing that, if you did go back and squat it, you know, what, what would it be at? I mean, you probably lose some skill of it, right? But you would probably be able to maintain a pretty decent squat if you're not losing a squat jump weight. Yeah. Uh, and and I've, I've said that before. I was like, okay, you're not going to go back and probably hit the same max squat if you haven't done it for two, three months, but you might be at 92% of it. Mm-hmm. And then the next week you might be at like 98% of it, you know, and then you might hit a, a new record in, in a month. Yeah. It's really not in, in my experience. There's not like this huge drop off or like this long road back to being strong. Assuming we're talking about somebody who's, you know, they're still sprinting, they're still jumping they're still throwing stuff. They're still doing, you know, power exercises. Like there's a lot of stimulus there to help them maintain the strength. Yeah. Now, if you just go on vacation for a month, well, then obviously you're going to lose a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, generally, I, I just don't see a, a huge issue with like strength dropping off. Yeah. Especially yeah, when you have those things to measure. So that's, I think I've maybe in subconsciously, I've just resorted more to standing vertical, but I think I like the idea of putting, yeah, like some weight, a little like a vest or some sort of consistent load too, especially if the athlete's force demand is a little bit higher too. I, I I literally like that. So awesome stuff. I think that's a good place to leave it, Dan. Man, we've covered some great stuff today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It's so much fun to talk with someone who like we, we share that commonality of like back in the day, just try and being obsessive about improving performance. It's really fun seeing where you've taken it all. And it's good catching up with you again after at least face to face after uh, virtually after a, a little <laughs> bit of time at lacrosse together. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Yes, yeah, it's been fun, man. Definitely. 
Thanks for tuning in for another show. If you enjoyed it, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you're listening to, we'd really appreciate it. We'll see you guys back next week with another great guest.